I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 213, and today in the show, we're joined by one of my favorite writers in the outdoor world, Bill Heavey. And we're discussing lessons learned from hunting failures, native hunter-gatherer cultures, outdoor media, and much more much more. Hey guys, and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today in the show, we are joined by Bill Heavey. Now, Bill is a writer for Field and Stream, You've probably seen his back page column. It's called A Sportsman's Life, which if you've ever read that magazine, I got to believe you'd remember that column because at least for me, it's absolute gold. In fact, it's usually one of the very first things I read in the magazine. Like I said, it's on the very last page. It's usually accompanied by kind of a a wild character illustration of Bill. Um, And it's always funny and um, insightful lots of times too. So not only though does Bill write for Field and Stream, he has also authored four books, including If You Didn't Bring Jerky, What Did I Just Eat? It's Only Slow Food Until You Try to Eat It, You're Not Lost If You Can Still See the Truck, and most recently, Should the Tent Be Burning Like That? Now, I gotta say, Bill is one of my absolute favorite hunting and fishing writers, and, and, and really maybe one of my very favorite writers no matter what genre. He's just one hell of a good storyteller, and a lot of other folks seem to think so too, for instance, Ted Nugent said, quote, Bill Heavey is my favorite writer. When I die, I want him to gut me, stuff me, and deliver my eulogy for one good last laugh, end quote. And Steve Rinella, when describing one of Bill's books, said, quote, Whether Heavey's hanging out with trendy foragers in San Francisco or butchering caribou with indigenous hunter-gatherers in Alaska, he related his experience with respect, curiosity, and well-honed humor. Not only is this book perfect for anyone who loves food or the outdoors, it's also perfect for anyone who loves a good story well told. End quote. So, there's lots of high praise for our guest today, and I'm excited for you to get to hear from him. 
In this conversation, I chat with Bill about all sorts of stuff, um, including his background as a hunter and angler. We talk through how he became a writer for Field and Stream. Uh, we get into some of his thoughts about outdoor television. Uh, we hear about what he's learned from hunting with native hunter cultures. We talk about how he learned from his failures, or how he tries to learn from his failures in the outdoors, how he's tried to get his daughter into the outdoors, and a whole lot more. It's it's a it's a wide ranging conversation. It was a lot of fun. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But before all of that, I do have my good buddy Dan Johnson with us today for our weekly pregame show. Uh, we've got a few things to catch up on in regards to our own personal and hunting-related adventures. So that said, if you're new to the show, though, and if you have no interest in hearing us blab on about our personal lives or our recent turkey hunts, feel free to fast-forward right to the beginning of Bill's interview, which begins around 26 minutes and 30 seconds or so. And for the rest of you, here we go. I do have Mr. Nine Fingers, Dan Johnson, back with us, and we got to do our our intro story time BS pregame show because we haven't done that in like two weeks and I need to catch up with you, buddy. What's uh what's new? Two things, real quick. One, our schedules are becoming more complex, and I feel like I my my co-host responsibilities I've slacked off in them, and I apologize for that. Well, that's okay, man. You, you're a you're a business owner of your own. You're running like 19 different podcasts now. <laughs> I can't even keep track of all the stuff you got going on over there. So between that and my new uh, baby life and new projects, yeah. it's just kind of a new it's world, crazy. a new world. But uh, well, we're gonna connect when we can connect, and uh, I'm glad I got you right now. I was I was worried the last like two or three times you've had a sick baby. Today we're healthy, oh, right? Oh man. Yeah, they're all healthy now. It was crazy for a while. It was like passing it around like a hot potato, man. They were just, uh, one got sick, then one got better. Then the next one got sick and so forth and so on. And and then uh, just uh, now we're all good, knock on wood. Man, I got to tell you, you know, in the past when you've told stories about your sick kids and everything, usually it's just about, you know, we kind of joke about how inconvenient it is or what a pain mm-hmm. in the butt it is and everything. But now I can relate to you on a different level <laughs> um, because Everett got sick last week or it was a week and a half ago or something. I had been sick and then he came down with a cold and um, just like hearing him hacking away all night and struggling to breathe, being all congested. I, it was just so. Uh, it, it was a. It was a really helpless, sad, horrible feeling as like a father seeing my son like that, and yeah. like not knowing what to do, not knowing how to help him. Um, that was the first time I've had that that feeling that I'm sure I'm gonna have a, a whole lot more in the coming yeah. years. And it's it's like, uh, man. It's, you know what? It's kind of you scary. know it's worse than almost worse than that. So now my daughter is starting to become social where, you know, she's a five-year-old, you know, five-year-old girls start, I don't know, acting like 16-year-old girls. And, (laughs) you know, and we we were at dance one time and this one girl was talking about how she was going to be having a party. And, and she said to my daughter, well, you can't come to my party. And my daughter just got like this look on her face, like, oh my God, you know, like this is the, the end of the world for me. Oh, and man. I got pissed off. <laughs> like, yeah. a dad shouldn't do that, but it's like, that's how much you care 
about your kid and that, you know, it's not necessarily that you want them to be accepted socially, but it's just like, I don't know. There was something about that comment that made me mad and I almost like acted like a kid. And I was like, well, you can't come to our party. And then like <laughs> grabbed her and walked out. Yeah. Well, yeah, I get that. I mean, you don't want your, you don't want your baby to hurt. You don't I want know. them to go through pain, Absolutely. whether it's physical or social or I can, I can just already tell I'm going to be that dad who's just, uh, I don't know, emotional, worried. I, I just, I can already see it. It's, it's amazing how this flip switches and, and everything that used to matter so much all of a sudden goes down a few notches and yeah. you just, you just, uh. I don't know if you told me this or someone told me this, but they said like having a child is like having your heart now outside of your body mm-hmm. and is is weird or is like woo woo as that sounds like I'm already seeing that. Like I, I, I don't even understand how I can love this kid so much already. I was yeah. gone this weekend for four days um, on a hunting trip and just being gone four days. Like I can now I finally relate to you, Dan, like when you talked about being gone on your trips and wanting to get back, yeah. like I, when I got home and like walked in the door and Kylie walked out holding him, I literally like teared up. I was like so happy to see him. It was such a weird, yeah. a weird, crazy thing. Um, and I think I talked cool. to you about this last uh, rut. I mean, this this last November was your last November as you know not having any kids, right? Mm-hmm. So this is going to be your first hunting season where you're going to be gone a lot. And for me, I pulled out of the driveway. And I had a sense of regret come over me because I knew that I was leaving my wife with three kids and I was being selfish and I was just this feeling, but like it's, I'm torn because I, the same feeling that is telling me to stay home is the same passion that is telling me to go out and be a hunter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Both, both strong poles and strong emotions. It's crazy. I I just see that more and more it's going to be me i'm going to be entering these same dilemmas you've had and trying to understand how to balance it and how to yeah. um yeah i'm just uh, i know these years these like early years are going to be tough in that way but i'm i'm looking forward to already like fast forward a handful of years further on when he can start joining me for the stuff then uh hopefully things will will be really awesome then so absolutely absolutely yeah, have you been up so, to anything interesting lately y- just continuing on a serious note, just for one second, I work downtown, okay? Um, I work where I, I park in a parking ramp and I take a skywalk and all these things. Now, I was raised, my mom, God bless her heart, she said, don't judge people based off their looks. Don't judge people based off, of, you know, until you get to know them. Uh, all these things, you know, like everybody should be tre- uh, created equally. But, dude, I don't know what it is about pigeons that I hate so much just by looking at them. I hate pigeons. Like, I don't like pigeons at all. I mean, if, uh, they, were, went, if they went extinct, I would be like, you know what? Good. <laughs> I was really confused at first because you're talking about your mom telling you not to judge people. So I'm like, is well, pigeons is pigeons like how you def- is that some group of people that I don't know that the label of? But you're talking about no. pigeons. <laughs> you're talking about pigeons, the animal. Uh, yeah, I know, like pigeons, the animal. Yeah, what, what have they done? Base, oh, they, you know, they're just gross. They're ugly. They lay a whole bunch of eggs and then they don't sit on them. 
they poop all over the place. They're just disgusting. And, you know, you know, obviously you shouldn't just look at a pigeon because a pigeon by itself is a bird. It, it has pre- like sometimes it can be pretty looking, but then you really look at it and then you're like, oh, man, what a pile of crap that bird is. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's, I guess I never had to think deeply on pigeons because I just I'm almost never in a city where you see a bunch of them. Yeah. So like out here in the old, the old homestead here in southern Michigan, it's like I got some robins. I've got some what what I get are the barn swallows and those suckers. Yeah. They are bad news. They're nesting in every nook and cranny in my barn. They're yeah. pooping all over my deck. They're, yep. I, I don't particularly care for them. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah, but they're like a, uh, a swallow or a sparrow. For me, something you kind of just live to accept. You deal with them, but like a pigeon, man, I don't know. Like, I think I get it from my grandpa because my grandpa didn't like pigeons either. Really, that's like a thing yeah. you know about your grandpa. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. I mean, he didn't like pigeons. He told me that once. He's like, you know what? I really hate pigeons. You know, there's I don't, there's certain <laughs> things I remember about my grandpa, like conversations we had and like really powerful, yeah. impactful conversations we have. Yep. Yep. Like about the meaning of life and ethics of hunting and stuff. I love that one of the things yep. you remember about your grandpa is not liking pigeons. <laughs> oh yeah. My grandpa had a really like one thing I love about my grandparents and that I that I will take to the grave with me is work ethic, right? In order for them to survive and, and feed their family, they had to work. They were they were both farmers, right? So both sets of my grandparents were farmers. So they had to work every day to make ends meet. And the fact that my one grandpa just hated pigeons. So like <laughs> I don't know I don't know why we're talking about this, honestly. It was just something today. I don't know if you ever have those things that happen that you are you get worked up about something that's so insignificant, but it just really rubs you the wrong way. And like <laughs> today I just saw this group of pigeons sitting there looking all cocky and they're like, Hey, don't look at us. Cause we're going to crap on your car and we're going to have a whole bunch of babies and they're going to crap on your car. Uh, so don't look at us. And I looked at them and they probably went and crapped on my car, but you know, and, who knows. and it's gotta be like, this is kind of like salt on the wound, right? Cause exactly. maybe you're having a long day at work or you wanted to, yep. right? So it's like, uh, I got to go to the cubicle, and then I'm getting crapped on. I can I can see how that would be. Irritating. It was more it was more of right off the bat, right? Sun's coming up earlier today. I pull into my parking spot. There was pigeons waiting there for me, and they were looking at me like. <laughs> so my day instantly started off bad. That's not good. That's not good no. at all. No. Do, do you have, do you have any uh, any happy stories, Dan, or should I tell my happy story? Yeah, I want you to tell your happy story because the next story I was going to tell is about like how I respect possums. So you can go, you can go ahead. You better tell your story. Okay, we 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 officially now have to have a podcast episode that's nothing but you and me talking about which animals we respect, which we don't care for, which we really dislike. Let me tell you about cockroaches. So, don't even get me started. Yeah. Dude, speaking of possums, though, really quick, I let the dogs out of the house the other night, and they just go barreling out of the door into the field, and there's like a cut cornfield next to my house. They just went tearing out there, and so I go running after them, and there was a big old possum, and both my dogs were like all puffed up, strutting around it, and the possum's hissing at them, and I thought I was about to have to break up a dog and possum fight. Yeah, I understand that one of my dogs is smaller than the possum. Um, but we were able to end it amicably with some conversation and <laughs> pull them out of there before things got yeah. Western. 
but yeah. uh, possums. Yeah. So so hunting though. Hunting. Hunting. Turkey hunting. Turkey hunting. You haven't done any more turkey hunting, right? Since uh, our nope. turkey hunting episode. One and done, but it sounds like you have. Yeah, I did. I, uh, you know, since we last chatted, I had that weekend where I took my nephew out and tried to get him a bird. Things didn't go well. There was there was very few birds. There's only one bird gobbling, um, and he went the other way. We just had one evening, one morning, so that was a bummer. Um, and then I went out a few more days just scouting and, like, just trying to film some birds and record some birds. Um, that was nice. But then this weekend, I went on, like, my real hunt. I was saving my tag for this weekend. Um, so I went and did another hunt with the crew from Meat Eater. So we met up um, on this new property that I've got permission to hunt in southwest Michigan that I've told you about. Yep. Um, and me and Steve and Giannis and one of their cameramen, Dirt Myth, and um, another one of Steve's friends, Andy, who's an unbelievable cook. We all got together out there and spent, I guess it was, three and a half days hunting. Yeah. And, uh, man, had a really, really good time. It was it, it was one of those things where you see how hot and cold turkey hunting can be. Oh, yeah, man. I, uh, I've had seasons where they go bananas in the tree, and then they fly down, and then they shut off. Or I have one day where they're they're gobbling until noon, and then they shut off. You know, then they do what they typically do, and then they they shut off. And then the next day, one gobble in the tree, and then no gobbles. So I've definitely experienced that. Yeah, it's just like it with deer hunting. Like you and me have talked so often about how we wish we could just get into their heads and like know what they're thinking or know why they do what they do. Same thing with turkeys. Yeah. Like if I could ever understand what that trigger was that causes those different kinds of days, it'd be so interesting because that, yeah. that first day we went out and it was just bad. There was, we did see some birds, but there was hardly any gobbling at all. The turkeys would not respond to calls at all. Um, me and Steve went out the first day together and it was just, we got set up. Saw some birds came out, then some hens, some gobblers came out, then some hens and some jakes, and they just milled around in the middle of this field, and nothing we did could get them to come to us. So then we're like, okay, there was like an island of trees in the middle of this field, and we thought if we dropped off the backside of the field, we could use a hill to sneak around them and reposition and get closer, like maybe get to within like 50, 60 yards, and try calling then and using this island of trees in the middle as cover. So we did that, and by the time we got over there and got set up and started calling, they weren't in sight anymore, and then we kind of kept maneuvering, trying to look around, and then we finally found that the birds now were where we had been sitting earlier, right in front of that. <laughs> right. And then uh, we kept trying to get after them, and nothing would work. So later in the evening, we were in a new area, same kind of deal. We saw some birds out in the distance. We tried to maneuver around them. By the time we got close, they had moved. They wouldn't work in. So it was just kind of a frustrating day. But uh, the next day was like, turkey heaven it was just me and uh, i went out with a cameraman that day and um right away you heard birds on the roost i went to that same field but this time i decided to um, we got in there earlier so i was able to set up closer to where they were roosted right off of that island of trees got a decoy out there me and dirt got set up behind this tree 
and did a little bit of yelping, and these two gobblers came off the roost really early. It seemed especially early. They came out, and I thought that they would still be up in the tree. I was just doing a couple tree yelps, and then I happened to just be kind of glassing around, just taking in the scenery, and then all of a sudden there's these two birds right on the edge of the field coming my way. I couldn't believe it. Um, so they start coming in. They're gobbling at everything I'm doing. They come and they're coming, they're coming. They got to maybe 65 yards, and I'm lined up on them, but I'm just like, I'm not going to take that long of a shot. Um, even though I was using these, uh, I don't know if you've seen those new Winchester XRs. They're the longer range um, uh, shells that they came out with a year or two ago. And I've, I've wanted to get them for a couple of years, never tried them until now. Three inch? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I was like, you know, supposedly they can shoot out there to 60 or more, but I just I, don't, I just didn't want to risk it. So they got to like that distance and then stood looking around. And I don't know if they could see the decoys and they just didn't like them or maybe they couldn't see the decoys because they were on a hill the, the turkeys were in a low spot the decoys were up on a hill so i'm not sure if they ever got to the point they could see them but uh but eventually they just turned and went the other way and at this point i'm like okay that was it like these are the same birds from yesterday they were not receptive at all yesterday so i thought this was probably our one chance and now that there's no way they're gonna come in again to another stupid hunter calling at them so I was kind of bummed and just kind of watched them walk away. And then these hens come out and one of the hens starts yelping and she starts making some noise. And so I think, Ooh, this could be my chance. If I can piss this hen off, if I can get her fired up, maybe she'll come my way. And if she comes my way, that might be the one thing that could pull these toms in. So every time she yelped, I was yelping right back. She'd yelp, I'd yelp. She'd yelp, I'd cut her off. I'd mimic everything she did. I was getting really aggressive, and it just kept her talking. So she was going, and it, was, it went on for like 5, 10, 15 minutes. I don't know how long, but we were just yelping, yelping, yelping. She was irritated, and lo and behold, she started coming our way with some other hens. And just like I was hoping, here come the toms. They start following those hens in, and then eventually I think that those birds got high enough on the rise. They saw the decoys, and then that just kind of flipped the switch. Hammered like every five seconds, just like a dream turkey scenario, came right, right in, and uh, at like 40 yards before um, before they went behind another little rise, I had that opening and took the shot and, and rolled a nice big gobbler. So yeah, got my Michigan turkey. That's awesome. It was Congrats, a blast, man. man. It was fun. It was one of those mornings, like, it was just the perfect morning. Cool, so, clear. What were you going to say? High pressure, probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I actually think that's exactly what it was. When you when you kill a turkey, how is that in comparison to how you, you know, how you feel when you kill a, like, a buck? Is there any comparison? It's a good, it's a good question. Um it's definitely different. You know, there's, there's still that feeling of like appreciation for the animal, for the experience. Like it's definitely like an exciting moment. Um, because the hunt went the way you want it to, you, you filled your tag, you get to bring some meat home. Um, but I'd be lying if I didn't say there was like a difference in significance in some way. And I don't mean to any way, like say that animal's life was worth less than like a deer or something. But yeah. it, but it does feel different. I think maybe it's just because of like the amount of time and energy, probably that goes right. into it. You know, with turkey hunting, you can kind of show up, and if you kind of have a basic idea of what you're doing, 
do some calling. If you if you're in the right places, you know you can get a bird in, in a day or two. Like, like this scenario, second day of hunting, um, right. and that's great. But as you and me know, when it comes to deer hunting or elk hunting or something, just the energy and time and effort and planning and preparation, uh, and then the inherent difficulty in seeing, just seeing, let alone encountering, and then getting a shot at a mature buck or something like that. Um, that's just a night and day difference. So absolutely. I do feel different after that. Um, and then maybe there's just something, I mean, I don't know, a, a big mammal just, just it's, it's different walking up on a big mammal, like a deer or an elk that you just killed. Um, I still like when I walk up on a deer or an elk, you, I still get that like kind of pit in my gut at first kind of like oh man like there's a little bit of i don't know if it's remorse or if it's whatever it is there's that emotion it's love man well that yeah i mean yeah it's this weird swamp of all these different emotions yeah love appreciation sadness respect uh, just a lot of stuff um and that i still have that to some degree with a turkey but it's like turned up many more notches with a deer or something like that Right. Um, it's hard to explain though, I guess exactly how that happens or why, but yeah, man, it was, uh, it's always a great, it's always a great, um, it's always a great day when things work out like that, you know? So your turkey season's over now, right? Yeah. Um, sort of, uh, sort of. as far as me trying to kill a bird. Yeah. I might try to go to Ohio for like a day, but just the way my schedule is looking, it's, it's kind of crazy. So I, I probably yeah. won't get to go hunt myself, but um, we are doing a deal here where like all, you know, all my buddies that come out to Iowa for the shed hunting camp, um, right. we're going to get together at Dustin's house and, um, try to do some turkey hunting here together. So I'm just going to tag along for that and call for people and just be around for the shenanigans. So hopefully, perfect. hopefully Corky and Dusty and Furter and all those guys can get a bird and, um, I'll get to share in that from, uh, from a observation standpoint. We should try to do a a fun out of state turkey hunting trip next year. Oh, that would be that would be awesome. I've been thinking, you know, we were talking about how we need to do a western shed hunt. A western yeah. turkey hunt would be really cool too. Right. Um, right. Cuz I've heard so they a different just, species other than eastern. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've heard Nebraska would be a great place to do that as well. Yeah. Cuz they've got three of the different subspecies all in the same state. Really? Yeah. Hmm. The more you know. Yeah. So uh Turkey season's coming up, uh, or it's wrapping up here soon, and then, I don't know about you, but at that point then, it's just full-blown summer prep. We're almost at summer prep right now for whitetails. Dude, I got my trail cameras set out, um, and all this stuff kind of got sparked because I, I just got my mount back from the taxidermist, and it's hanging in my man cave, and I get to look at it now, and it just makes me think of all the things I got to do to get ready for the season and, and get trail cameras out and mineral stations out is uh priority numero uno. I love it. I love this time of year. Like this is for me, like when the whitetail stoke factor, like really gets, mm-hmm. gets cranked and, yep. uh, dude, summer velvet coming up hot. I cannot wait. Yeah, buddy. <sighs> well, anything else we need to cover before we shut down the intro? Um, we're going to have to do one of those full Mark and Dan BS about our favorite animals soon. But, uh, (laughs) until then, any final thoughts? No, sir. I think we're good to go here, man. 
All right, well then with that being the case, let's take a quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties, and then we'll get to our interview with Bill Heavey. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Neil Hogger, a land specialist out of Wisconsin. And Neil is going to be telling us about what habitat improvements can be made to northern properties, like that of Minnesota and Wisconsin. Well, in northern Wisconsin in particular, where I live, what you deal with is monoculture of forest for the most part, especially in the upper third of the state. And as such, the most important thing you do revolves around food. The deer are going to go where the food is. And with that monoculture, you can have a biological desert in the, in the timber. So if you can create a food plot, that's fantastic. But if you really want to make it special, you want to recreate what I call as a trifecta. Try to create a food plot near a structure such as a creek or perhaps a ridge point that the deer must navigate around. And now you've created a pinch point. And uh, if you want to really spice it up, you can maybe put in a, uh, a watering hole or um, you can maybe do a, a blocking hinge cut. And then you've created maybe a trifecta or a quadfecta. But the goal here is to give the deer a reason to be on the spot and make sure your tree stand is in that spot. If you'd like to learn more, and to see the properties that Neil currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash hogger. That's H-A-U-G-E-R. All right, here with me now is Bill Heavey. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, and, and I got to say, I want to I wanna start off here by shamelessly buttering you up and saying that you are one of my absolute favorite writers. Um, your, your ability to weave humor and a story with real motion and, and themes, it is just, it is impressive. And I am never left wanting after reading one of your stories or books. So, uh, so thanks for being here and doing this, Bill, because uh, I've been looking forward to it for quite a long time. That's it? You're not going to butter me up any further? No, that was it. I'm going to be quick and, and then we're going to dive into things. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I'm just you. Thank you very much for the very kind words. I, I appreciate them. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, we were just talking a little a little while ago before we started to record how no one really, you know, wants to hear about our backgrounds, our careers and everything. They just want to get into the good stuff. And, but I want to still talk a little bit about, Bill, how you got to this point um, before we start diving into some of your experiences out in the woods and, and waters. And with that being the case, Something I don't know a whole lot about, even though I've read most of your, I've read most of your books and articles, is, is kind of your background as a hunter and angler. You know, how did you get into these things? How did this all start for you? Um, I always tell people that I got into this sort of bass backwards because I was, uh, I was sent to summer camp in uh, North Carolina and New Hampshire as a kid for about three years. And I became obsessed with watching that little red and white bobber about 12 feet from shore, just convinced that there was a monster swimming around down there with my name stenciled on its side. (laughs) Um, And that turned out not to be the case, but uh, that didn't really deter me. I kept trying. And then, you know, as I stopped going to summer camp, I more or less forgot about it. And then some friends gave me an ultralight four foot six inch ugly stick and a spinning reel for my 21st birthday. 
and I rediscovered it and turned into kind of a maniac smallmouth fisherman on the Potomac. And um, so what happened was I was doing, at the time I was a generalist and travel writer, and I was doing a piece for the Washington Post. Uh, they wanted something about close to home vacations. And I suggested, well, what about uh, canoeing and fishing the rivers around Washington, the Potomac, the James, and the Rappahannock for, for smallmouth? And I said, okay. So I, I did a story for them. Um, and then after it was published, uh, in the manner of freelancers everywhere who are constantly seeking bigger markets, I thought, well, what the heck, I'll send this up to Field and Stream. Um, and I was very surprised when they said, yeah, we think we could use use this if you tweaked it a little bit. And I said, sure, what do you want? And um, it kind of turned into a, a defense of spinning after, about the time that everybody else was moving to fly fishing and a river runs through it had just come out. Um, and fly fishermen were everywhere and they seemed to think that they owned the river, you know, that any water they can cast over was automatically their, their water. And um, so pretty soon I was writing about um, fishing regularly for field and stream, uh, which was great. And then I thought, you know, you could, <laughs> for completely mercenary reasons, I thought, you know, you could double your market if you, if you tried hunting, which absolutely horrified my mother, you know, <laughs> like one of those, how could you do that to these poor little animals? Would you like some more veal? Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I took up uh, bow hunting for deer and was just hooked almost from the get-go. And the first time that I killed uh, a deer, which was a, which was a, uh, a little five-point buck uh, on a friend's farm, this kind of neural circuitry went off in me this mix of like an explosion of pride and humility and triumph and sorrow and all these emotions and i thought this can't just be me you know we've got to be hard you know as as the name of your show uh points out this has got to be in our wiring mm -hmm. you know you just couldn't you just couldn't create all this out of nothing and I started to realize, you know, we were all descended from master hunters or we wouldn't be here. So it's like we had this neural pathway that most people never hook up, plug in. Um, and when you do, uh, it's pretty it's pretty amazing and pretty compelling. Yeah. So uh, I started writing about hunting. In that piece, you or in that hunt, you mentioned your first bow hunt. Um, I, I've been rereading some of my favorite stories of yours, and there was that story where you talked about this bow hunting obsession, how that began, and I loved how you described your addiction. You said that hooked would be an understatement. I was filleted, battered, and deep fried. I thought that was that was pretty good. Uh, I think a lot of us can relate to that for sure. I, I'm right there with you. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you you had your first bow hunt, killed a deer. How has your hunting journey grown from there? What what was next? Did you kind of start trying every different experience you could get your hands on? I did, but you know, I never got nothing ever 
got to me like bow hunting for deer did. You know, I, I will try anything. Um, I'm not a particularly good wing shot. Um, I'm a lousy wild turkey hunter. <laughs> and um, actually, one of the things I discovered in um, uh, in Arkansas on this last trip is I don't really like turkey hunting that much. You know, you get, <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't get up at you don't get up at crack of dawn. You got to be in the woods and set up in the crack at the crack of dawn, and you hunt until you know almost almost uh, you know the end of light, and then you have dinner and go back to where you're sleeping, and you know five hours later it's time to get up again. So it really wears you down. And actually, I've never gotten beyond the what I call the baby in a car seat uh, level of turkey hunting, which is to say I've never called in a turkey and myself and killed it. You know, I've shot turkeys that other people have called in for me, but you know, that's any moron can do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, um, I've seen that you've turkey hunted with some pretty exceptional uh, turkey hunters too, like Jeff Buds and, yeah. and Ray I. Uh, so yeah. you've, you've learned from some of the best though. Well, you don't, you learn in a way, but you know, when you hunt with Jeff Buds, you're just running to keep up with the guy. Yeah. What's that I like? Mean, it's, uh, it's humbling because he sees, he hears a turkey and he takes off at a, at a jog straight towards it. <laughs> and then he, he sees the birds somehow, you know, a distance through his binoculars and then figures out a way to, uh, to get close. So some of the places we were hunting, we were going down these, you know, culverts uh, that were, you know, like 20 feet deep out on, on an Indian reservation and then belly crawling up to these birds and, um, and trying to shoot them. Um, and he, I mean, he, that, that guy was just driven. I mean, we would hunt all day and then drive four hours to another state because he wanted to get birds and, you know, we'd be in South Dakota and he'd want to get to Kansas or something. Am I right in um, that, in that Jeff Buds holds the most Turkey grand slams of anyone in the world? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I think he's, uh, got twice as many as his nearest, uh, rival, uh, more, you know, it might even be more than that or, or less than that, but he's got a, a substantial lead on anybody else. Being around someone like that, I, I heard someone who, who knows him or had encountered him mention that he kind of reminded him of, of like a Lance Armstrong type, just like so driven. So, yeah. so, yeah. um, just so elite. I got to believe that given what you're, what you do, you get to be around a lot of hunters like that kind of at the very, very top of their top of their game or whatever you call it. Yeah. But I mean, it's hard to, you know, it's all, you know, Jeff is a wonderful guy. Um, and I really, I really love him, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like somebody told him when he was a kid that he wasn't good enough. <laughs> and he's, he's spending his life proving them wrong, you know, and, uh, and, and he's doing it. Um, but I just, you know, it's a, it's a different mentality 
to me, to me, that mentality of being first or, you know, uh, I don't know. To me, that's not what hunting's really about. And, you know, I don't even want, I can't watch the, I can't watch hunting shows. They're just so, you know, it, we're led to think that this is how hunting is. And, and it's not, you know, when those guys go and see this huge deer coming out of the woods, you know, you can be pretty sure that they aren't the ones who scouted it. Um, and in their own way, they're babies in a car seat. Right. Um, I I read read that you once went on a shoot like that where you were going to be filmed for TV. Oh, yeah. And then it it sounded like it wasn't a great experience. Can you tell us about what it was like to be on the other side of the camera? This was was my first, you know, what in the industry is called a writer hunt, which is when you're invited on a trip and your expenses are going to be paid. And all you got to do is show up and you're just thinking, man, I am, I am the man. You know, I am, I, here I am. All you, <laughs> all you poor slobs are out there. You got to buy your own plane ticket and da, 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 and all this is being done for me. Uh, so you get a little puffed up and then I'm up there and they say, you know, we just want to ask you one favorite. Would it be okay if we put a, a cameraman out there with you and, and he won't bother you. You know, he'll be in a tree stand. He'll be in a ladder, a uh, tree stand, just, uh, a few feet above your head, you know, usually on the same tree or on a, you know, on a, a limb where he's got a view of you. And I said, sure, sure. And I got out there and within an hour or two, I was profoundly uncomfortable. And I felt like, I felt like I was doing porn, you know, <laughs> this was deer. This was hunter porn. It's like, you know, if you're making love to your, you know, to your wife or your girlfriend in the privacy of your, of your bedroom, that's one thing. If you're making a movie of it to sell, that's something else. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to be that guy. So I said, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I, I can't do this. Huh. It's really, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. If If you could take, if you could be like the god of all hunting television, hunting and fishing television, and enact some set of changes to make it how you would find it appealing again, what would you do to change hunting or fishing television or media in that way? I don't, I'm not sure it could be done. You know, to me, hunting is a kind of sacred thing. And as soon as you put it, as soon as you're trying to make money off it, it's, it's something else. Um, you know, it's a, you've, you've kind of corrupted it. Hmm. it you know, that, that's my personal feeling about it. So I, I doubt that I will ever have that. <laughs> I doubt that anybody will ever offer me a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Now playing, playing devil's advocate though, why is, why is writing about a hunting experience and making money off of it different than filming a hunting experience and making money from it? Uh, well, that's a very impertinent question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because it's, it's your reflections on it in, 
you know, in, in private, and then you're sharing your experience. I mean, my, my take, my take on the things I write is, is sort of that, is that I'm arrogant enough to believe there's nothing particularly special about me. And so if I'm writing how I feel, if I'm honestly writing about my impressions of an experience, it's kind of a, you weren't there, but this is kind of what it would be like if you were. And that seems quite different to me mm-hmm. somehow. And maybe, maybe I'm just maybe in a completely self-serving way, but, um, it seems almost like a a service to people, whereas TV shows loaded down with, you know, well, it was really that nose jammer spray that, that and enabled me to take this buck mm-hmm. and my, you know, my ozone, my ozonics thing and my, you know, my, this company's arrows and this company's bow. And, um, they're just like, you know, they're kind of selling everything they touch and I'm, uh, I guess I don't feel like I'm doing that. I'm, t- I'm selling what the, I'm selling, uh, I'm trying to sell, you know, and convey what the, what the experience was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I a hundred percent understand what you're, I understand what you're getting at there. And I, I've had those same feelings too. I mean, there's, there's a lot of outdoor television that, that kind of makes you, uh, uncomfortable to the stomach when uh, yeah. when you watch it, and I I know when you describe it compared to uh, compared to pornography, there's there's definitely a correlation there or that that it rings true. Um, yeah. Now speaking of your writing and how you express or share your own experience, um, did you? I mean, if if anyone hasn't written or excuse me, read your stories or your books, your column and field and stream, anything like that, they may not be familiar. But you have a very, um, I don't know if it's satire, but it's um, you do a great job of bringing humor into the piece, and you kind of uh, represent yourself as this kind of bumbling every man who's making all these mistakes, and you kind of you kind of make fun of yourself a lot in a way. Um, did you? know from the get-go that you always want to write in this style and present yourself like that? Or was this like a, a thought through decision as you, as you I, started going through it? I think, I, I mean, I think I was writing that way before field and stream. And I, I realized, you know, when I got to field and stream, the first thing that I noticed was everybody was an expert. You know, there were, everybody was writing from the view of, you know, everybody, the guy writing about, you know, hunting with, could shoot the eyes out of a running chipmunk at 300 yards. And the guy writing about fly fishing could take his navel lint and tie it up into a tarpon fly and catch a <laughs> 200 pound fish. And I realized, you know, uh, a, I, I can't compete with these guys and B, I don't really want to. Um, so I struck and then I realized there's nobody writing for the kind of the average guy and the average guy, uh, based on my experience, uh, 
experiences failure far more often than, than success. Mm-hmm. And so I think in a lot of ways, failure is a more universal experience than success. And I remember my editors were kind of surprised when that resonated with a lot of readers. And I said, really? I'm, you know, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're kind of like, you're just an, you're just a doofus, man. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so are most of the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I really, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't fake, uh, you know, I, I couldn't fake pretending to be competent at something that wasn't. <laughs> so, so that begs the question then, even though you, given all, given that your work is going and hunting and fishing all over the world in some cases, and then sharing those experiences, you get to hunt and fish a lot more than maybe the average guy or girl does. So even though that's the case, do you really struggle? Mm-hmm. Do you really struggle as much in real life as it seems on the page, or have you achieved some level of competence now that you've done it for so long? I mean, I've got some level of competence. You know, it. It. Uh, you know, I realize that one of one of the pleasures now for me. I mean, I live, you know, less than ten miles from the White House, and everybody goes, "Oh, you, you know, with your your." your fame as a field and stream writer, you must get, you know, places that to hunt offers of places to hunt all the time <laughs> going. Uh, actually I don't, and I haven't figured out how to leverage that into <laughs> some kind of access. Maybe and I'm sure that people that be able to do that, but I've never been able to, you know, get, turn that into more hunting access. So I, uh, I have to go pretty far ways to, to hunt. I mean, there's almost no public hunting grounds around here. I mean, you know, they're 60 miles away and those ones get hammered. Um, but I, I have learned one of the things I love now is just going out in the woods and, and following a deer trail and, and looking for sign. And, you know, if you just do that long enough, you got you get an eye for it. You know what a deer trail looks like even though you can't really explain how you know um that it's a deer trail and not a you know some some smaller animal uh you just get a sense of it you get a sense of you know where where deer like to bed and um you know if you find a if you if you find a bed and you find a hair uh of the deer that bedded there that's that's, that's really cool. That's kind of like finding an arrowhead, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, and I love, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I love going out with, uh, I was perch fishing the other day with my friends, uh, um, Paula Smith and Gordon leash out on the Potomac and Paula, uh, heard a bird call. She goes, that's the first Oriole I've heard this this year. <laughs> so she knows the bird by its call, and then they see another bird. No, they've had a, uh, you know, a, a pur- purple-breasted grosbeak or something in their backyard at their feeder, and they were really excited about that. And they were talking to another guy who'd seen some particular bird at his feeder. And they all got real excited about that. So, you know, people that can take it 
beyond just being good good hunters and start to gain a an appreciation for the larger picture of what's out there uh i have enormous respect for those people yeah that that transition from just a hunter to also a naturalist and a woodsman that that's yeah the whole experience yeah yeah i mean that's those are people to me those are people who really get it and i've seen paula (laughs) you know paula 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 has done all kinds of things that, that I can't talk about to get, <laughs> to get geese <laughs> and stuff. But at the same time we were dry, we were rowing back in uh, the time before this and she spotted a, a, a Canada that was tangled up in some fishing line in a little Creek that runs behind the boathouse. And she went, ah, damn. And she got back in the boat and rode herself up to it and uh she'd forgotten to take a knife so gordon said don't bill go run down there and take her a knife <laughs> <laughs> so i did and she spent 20 minutes you know calming this bird down picking it up talking to it and cutting the line free and then let it go and then came back the next day and said i you know i didn't see any feathers i think he's gonna make it so, you know, it reminds me kind of of the, the Indians who, you know, would hunt all kinds of animals, but then they would also have pet, pet animals, often of the same species that they, they hunted. Yeah. And I love that a lot of, you know, a lot of non-hunters just can't wrap their heads around that, um, how you can love the same animal that you're, that you're killing. Um, but in fact, in fact, once you really understand it, it doesn't seem strange at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here, but my assumption is that living so close to, you know, just outside of DC, uh, you're around a lot of people that, you know, don't have this context. They don't have this connection to the natural world that you do as a hunter or an angler. Um, so yeah. when you're at a, when you're at a dinner party or grabbing a drink or whatever it might be, and someone approaches you or, or wants to hear about what you do when you talk about hunting and whatnot, and you try to convey that point you just made, that being that hunting is an act of love, not an act of, of war or, 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 mm-hmm. uh, or anger or anything like that, malice. How do you go about trying to communicate that to someone? How do you get that? idea crossed um well first of all most people in washington are are much more concerned about telling you what they do than curious about what you do (laughs) you know washington is a town where the first question people ask is you know what do you do uh when they're assessing each other's uh relative you know importance in the world but um I don't get asked that question very much. I've been confronted several times by people who knew I hunted and said, you know, I just think hunting is awful and ought to be outlawed. And you guys are, you know, you're just in it for the thrill of the kill. And I, I do a kind of jujitsu, you know, where you use the own, the person's own momentum against them. And, and I say, you know, I kind of agree with you. 
you know, uh, the more I hunt, uh, the harder it is for me to kill stuff. And, you know, there are times when I'm not so sure it shouldn't be outlawed, um, except for, you know, um, you know, the, that government is best, which governs least people ought to have the opportunity to make up their own minds about it. And, um, you know, a lot of people have no clue of how deer are just denuding the forests, especially around here. I think Rock Creek Park has one of the highest deer densities in the country because there are no predators. Um, and they just eat everything that grows. And so you don't have songbirds and wild turkey and all kinds of stuff that should be there. And they're eating up the native plants. You know, they're speeding the growth of invasives. Um, you know, there's a very high incidence of Lyme disease because um, the, the places where the white mice that are one of the carriers from which uh, deer get the ticks, because, um, uh, you know, it's the larval and um, nymph stage ticks that feed on white mice and then get picked up by the deer. You know, there are a host of um, ill effects whenever any, you know, whenever any species gets out of balance and deer are just way out of balance. But um, and, you know, if 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 it seems like they're open. Um, and it's very disarming because when they uh Way too often, in my view, hunters just want to, you know, win that, win that conversation and tell these people that they're, you know, they're full of, they're full of it and they don't know what they're talking about. And that, you know, that doesn't change anybody's mind. Right. Um, that just digs the hole deeper. So, you know, if you just listen to people they'll find that very disarming, especially in somebody that they expect not to be listened by to buy. Yeah, it's a great point. Lots of times it becomes this, you be, so many times I think hunters become really defensive and go into attack mode. And uh, yeah. as you said, that's that if, if you're looking at simply from a, what's going to be the most effective tact that is not going to achieve the goal, as you said, of trying no. to change minds or, win over hearts. Um, and, and you just, you just confirm all the worst aspects of the hunter stereotypes that people have. Mm -hmm. um, you talked so. about, you talked about how some people from the outside might think we're in it just for the thrill of the kill, um, mm -hmm. getting the trophy, whatever it might be. Um, I, one of the things I've, uh, respected, about you the most is the way you're able to convey um, the emotion around the moments of the kill and the respect for the animal that I think if, if someone who had questions about hunting read some of your pieces, I think they would, they'd come away from them with a, with a newfound understanding and respect for, for what we do. Um, and I want to read, I want to read a quick um, bit of something you wrote and then kind of get you to expand on it if you don't mind. Um, it's, sure. it's a favorite of mine. It's a piece you titled worthy 
And in mm-hmm. this piece, uh, I'm just going to quote here a couple couple segments. You said, shaking, I clip my bow release to the string and rise. Taking the life of a deer is many things, but if you think trivial is among them, it's time to put down your bow and take up badminton. Come to your feet. Honor the animal whose life you seek. And later you say, after you have shot and killed a deer and walked up on her, you say, I lay a hand on her flank and stroke her hair. Wisps of steam from her body curl upward in the flashlight beam. I've read how native hunters believe that an animal doesn't die at once, but slowly, its spirit finding its way out of the body and onto the next world. I stay there another five minutes, stroking her coat, feeling the interlocking elation and regret, the gratitude and sorrow that only hunters know. With every stroke, I discover I'm mouthing, thank you, thank you, thank you, end quote. Can you, can you expand on what those types of moments are like for you, having, having taken an animal's life? Um, why is that a powerful moment for you? Um, well, you know, taking a, <laughs> taking a life, an innocent life of, uh, of another animal is, uh, almost to me is by definition, you know, momentous. I mean, you, one of the things you realize when you kill a deer, and especially when you're cleaning a deer is that you're not that different and you're going to die just as surely as this animal dies. And to the earth, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference <laughs> whose body the earth is working on as it, you know, returns it to the earth. And I also think of the, you know, the Indians thought of hunting as, um, the Indians used to take, uh, priests on hunting because they were terrified of displeasing the gods. And if you displease the gods, all kinds of, you know, misfortune might come to your, to your tribe, you know, sickness, um, not being able to find any more gain. And that if you didn't show proper respect, um, that was, that was really rash and, um, you know, stupid. And so they, they were more worried about displeasing, you know, the animal spirits and the, the gods that took an interest in that stuff than they were about, um, you know, their own, their own glory. I remember I hunted uh, caribou with this tribe I'd never heard of in Alaska, maybe because they were an interior tribe called the Gwich'in. And the Gwich'in believe, and uh, archaeologists are finding increasing evidence for this, that they actually have been following the Porcupine River herd of caribou for at least 5,000 years. And they consider themselves people of the caribou. And the caribou do this uh, circular migration every year that's, you know, it's 5,000 miles. It's one of the longest of any mammals. And each year they go to give birth near the shore because the, the uh, offshore winds blow the bugs away that, that spread diseases and sometimes you know, really prey on the, take a toll on the deer and the grass is good there. And, um, there aren't, 
many predators. And the Gwich'in have some name for this that translates roughly as, you know, sacred place where the caribou are born. And none, <laughs> no Gwich'in has ever seen it, much less set foot in it, because it's, it's off limits. It's a sacred place. And to, to violate this, and then it, even when they were starving, um, as far back as, as anybody knows, um, they would never go there. Because if they went there to kill caribou to get to save themselves, they would be, you know, um, damning the tribe, um, you know, henceforth. Um, so that's an amazing concept. And it turns out to be, this is where we're, it's the Anwar uh, it's exactly where drilling will start soon. Right. That's for the, oil. the coastal plain that recently is yeah, now being opened Anwar, up. Yep. And, you know, these people are just, they feel totally, you know, ignored and um, it's quite sad. Yeah. Not to mention the, impacts the ecological impacts on the animals themselves uh, as i understand it that's yeah. going to be very significant as well yeah i mean you have a, i mean it's a it's a it's a very small area relatively it wouldn't take much to completely screw it up and you know the oil companies are saying well you know we're not going to screw it up <laughs> and i don't believe they have any intention to screw it up but they've certainly screwed up a lot of places where they had no intention to screw it up. <laughs> um, yeah. So. yeah, I uh, I hunted caribou in Alaska for the first time this past year in interior Alaska, hunting the the forty mile herd, um, and that mm-hmm. was just an incredible, powerful experience. Just just seeing the migration, seeing the, the so many thousands of animals moving through, the scale of everything, the landscape, the wildlife. Um, what was that experience like for you? I have to imagine being in that area must have been uh, quite the... Being in that area after a while, I mean, I was the only uh, non-Indian in a village of a, about 120 people. And you pretty quickly come to, <laughs> to feel like you're in their world and their rules are the ones that apply. Um, you know, I asked my, uh, my host why, why all these, uh, caribou antlers were, were lying around basically just slowly decomposing into the moss. And he said, we, we don't pick them up. Uh, we never have. And, uh, a few years ago, there was a white woman who came, um, I think she was a photographer and she was picking them up and we kept telling her that's, that's really not a good idea. And she wasn't, wouldn't listen to us. And she left. And uh, a few years later, later that, that lady got sick and, and she died. And I said, don't you worry. <laughs> I'm not going to touch the caribou. <laughs> wow. But what really amazed me, but the, the head hunter of the village, uh, and, uh, you know, a successful hunter up there is still expected to, to share meat with the whole village. Um, he just had this sort of psychic uh, 
connection to the caribou. And so he said, we're going to go out hunting, you know, tomorrow. And then we didn't go. And I'm going, you know, Charlie, what's the deal? And he goes, up here, when you hurry is when you make mistakes. Um, and, you know, there's no room for mistakes in that kind of an environment up on the tundra. And then he wakes up the next day and he goes, yep, it's today. Their antlers have hardened up and they'll go anywhere now. And he just knew this, you know, wow. uh, and I don't, I don't know how he knew it. And then we went up glassing for caribou and these guys are hand holding, you know, 40 and 60 power spotting scopes and they're seeing caribou and saying, Oh, that's a nice bunch over there. Um, especially that one in the front and Charlie go, Hmm. I go, how, how far away are those? And he goes, oh, those 30 miles. And uh, he was looking at them, and from the way they were traveling and their, you know, their kind of posture and attitude, he seemed to know where they were going to be in 24 hours. And so we went to that place, and we camped, and uh, we got up the next morning, and shot three of those caribou. Huh. That's got to be an incredible experience to be, not only just being in a place like that, but then like you just described getting to be around and learn from native hunters and, and get to experience that culture. It seems like that's something mm-hmm. you've had a few opportunities to do. Um, I, I remember reading a piece where you were snowshoeing with the Cree. I think I, I, mm-hmm. I remember in, in Canada somewhere. Um, is there anything else that you've taken from those experiences that you've applied back to your own hunting when you're back on your own doing your own thing? Any, whether it's a culture or, or a level of respect or some, somehow yeah, you think level things of, different? It's a level of respect and a knowledge that we are, we were all like this, um, you know, a thousand years ago. We were, we all believed or 2000 years ago, we all knew um, the world about us much more intimately because that's all there was, you know? Um, one, of, one of the Gwich'in Indians, this guy, he was like Oscar the Grouch. He never spoke unless he wanted to. <laughs> I asked him once uh, about his grandparents. He said, my my grandmother used to say that in the old days, people were like animals because that's all what was in their minds. And, you know, they were, they were kind of studying the natural world all the time because that was their TV. That was, that's all there was. And, you know, when you start living like that, you get in touch with all kinds of things. And, you know, so these are people who didn't think there was anything at all extraordinary about having a dream about shooting a moose in a certain place, going there the next day and having a moose show up in that place and shooting it. They just thought, you know, that's just the way the world works. (laughs) Where to us, it seems like, you know, um, you know, magic. Yeah. And and so much of our success 
or quote unquote success in our minds, we, we assume has to be attributed to skill and all these other things that we've done or, or the technology or our gear or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, it's gotta be so interesting to, to be around someone who, who's thinking about things much more deeply. Yeah. So I sort of, you know, every, every bit of technology you use, you know, a scent, a scent, uh, you know, an ozonics or something or, um, whatever, in a way distances you from the experience. I mean, I know it makes it easier, of course, but, but it also starts to hollow out, you know, what it's all about. Hmm. Yeah. So taking rewinding a little bit in our conversation, I want to shift to something here. We talked a lot about uh, how you've focused a lot of your 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 storytelling, your writing around the average person's experiences in the wild, those mistakes and fumbles along the way. And um, you certainly talk about those mistakes you've made plenty, but you also, I've found, do a really a really nice job of of showing in a in a kind of honest, uh, real way what you've learned from those experiences or how you grew. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. always kind of that kind of moment, it seems like, in most of your pieces. So so for someone right now or for someone here six months from now or whatever who is feeling the, the fresh pain of some kind of failure in the field, maybe it was a miss, maybe they just spooked the deer of a lifetime, maybe they lost the biggest fish they've ever had in the line, um, what is your advice or what would you tell someone to be thinking about in those moments or those moments post that quote-unquote failure? Um, well, failure is how you learn. Um, you know, if you aren't, if you were successful every time you went out, you know, this, this wouldn't have any, any pull for you. And the other, you know, it, it really bothers me when, uh, when people get caught up on, you know, I've shot a bigger deer or caught, you know, caught a bigger fish than you have. Um, you know, a lot of times that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, it may mean, you know, in some cases the guy is clearly a better angler. Um, but you know, it's about, it's about you having, uh, an enjoyable experience. It's not about, you know, and I don't have to, you know, I can go out and fail and still have, a good time you know if you know if you're out shed hunt, hunting for shed antlers and you have to find one for it to be a good day you know you, sh- you shouldn't be out there um and you know to just get close to a big deer is a an awe-inspiring thing um this you know we put so much emphasis on this notion of success and failure and you know if you were somebody out there where hunting for food where success and failure was the difference between life and death you know would you care that much if the deer was you know a big deer or the biggest deer 
I, I, I don't think you would. I think you'd be happy to have some food. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what hunting derives from. So the whole, you know, it, you know, all over the place. And, uh, there are guys who go to, you know, uh, take canned hunts to have a big put a big, uh, rack of antlers to, to hang over their desk in their office. And it's not about the deer and it's not about them. It's about trying to impress somebody else. Um, and if that's your motivation, uh, once again, I think you should be doing something else because it's supposed to be about, it's supposed to be a private thing and what you, what you get out of it, what you enjoy about it, not competition with, um, anybody else, but yourself. Yeah. That, that focus on the experience, um, yeah, I think is, is so important. And it is easy to get caught up in all the hullabaloo around big deer or antlers or the the, the fill in that yeah. tag. But but of course, as you said, yeah, I think you lose sight of the you're losing something really special if that's what you get caught up in. Um, and something that in my life that has forced me to start rethinking some of the things that I appreciate about a hunting experience. Um, that I realize I'm going to have to continue changing moving forward is the fact that uh, we just had our first baby, my wife and I. I've got a three-month-old son, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm already thinking. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. I'm already thinking about how that's going to change everything for me and us in the future, and the excitement I have for introducing him to the outdoors. I'm already out there, and the, I already took him out behind the house, calling turkeys and holding him, and hearing that's gobblers great. come in. Yeah, it was it was so cool. But I've read some of your stories. We've we've talked about your daughter, and yeah, I'm just curious what you've learned from your experiences <laughs> introducing your daughter to the outdoors. Selfishly, if you have any advice for me as as a as a father hoping to introduce my son to hunting and fishing, um, anything you've learned there um, or you've experienced that would be worth passing on. Um, I think getting your kids playing with little bows and arrows and, you know, push button fishing reels and taking them out someplace where they can have a success, uh, especially near the beginning is, is a big deal. Um, there's the, you know, the movie Nanook of the North is, uh, has been called the, you know, actually the first documentary, uh, film ever made. And I think it was like in the 1920s or something. And I know that parts of it were staged, but a lot of it is, is true. And you see Nanook with his infant son and the kid's got a bow about 16 inches long and is shooting little sticks. And Nanook hasn't sit in his lap and just, you know, release, shoot stick after stick. And, I'm starting to wish that I'd done that with, uh, with Emma, my, uh, my, my buddy down in Arkansas has three kids and they are all just, uh, hunting and fishing maniacs because he's passionate about it. And he takes them, you know, every chance he gets. And now his kids are, you know, fighting about who gets to go out when he can't take all three of them. <laughs> you know? awesome. It was his, uh, nine-year-old son's birthday. And he goes, no, I, mean, I gotta be home, man. I gotta take Gib out 
um, to get his first turkey. Um, and that, you know, the, when I was at the house, the kids were showing me their turkeys and their mounted deer. And, you know, they, they were just, they were really psyched. And, you know, if your kids have to have, you know, it has to be their choice that if, if they, you know, if you're feeling like they have to love what I love, it's probably not going to happen, yeah. you know? And, uh, so you got to give them space to, to make it their own. And at the same time, give give them, you know, encourage them and give them opportunities. And I think, you know, Emma, Emma's like me, you know, uh, my father tried to get me interested in uh, golf and sailing and in, he'd even bought me some golf clubs. And I think if he'd really wanted me to get interested in them, he would have forbidden me to play golf or to sail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would have been all over that, you know, because I was just at that rebellion where anything my father was trying to get me to do, we were already in this, you know, Oedipal power struggle. Um, and if he'd said, you can't do this, I'd go, Oh yeah, watch me. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, speaking of kids, introducing kids to hunting. Um, I think that that feeds into a larger, um, quandary we find ourselves as hunters in America today, that being the, the loss of hunters in America and the, yeah. the continuing decline. And, and you recently wrote a, a short piece about this titled the next endangered species is the American hunter. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? What, what you're noticing there, what your thoughts on how, that how we can maybe try to plug the, plug the, the dam up and stop the bleeding. It's, it's a real challenge because you know, the, the kids are raised on, video games and indoor, you know, all their connections. You know, when I was a kid, the day you turned 16, you went and got your driver's license. That was, that was a rite of passage. Kids don't need to do that anymore. They can just go in their bedroom and shut the door and have access to their whole social world, their social lives. And, you know, parents, you know, usually don't know anything about it. And it's hard to compete with the, you know, the pleasures of video games are pretty instant. Um, and hunting, you know, hunting rewards patience and study. And, you know, it's, it's stiff competition. And then you have, you know, the divorce rate where you have a lot of times it's, it's the mom who has the kids and the mom doesn't have any experience hunting. Um, and some moms can, you know, unless a mom sort of makes a decision that she wants her kids to get involved in hunting and fishing, um, and she has no experience, she has to seek somebody out for that. Um, so first of all, she has to be open to that possibility. And then second of all, she has to be able to find somebody to do that. Um, both of which are you know, getting increasingly difficult. Um, I wish, you know, I wish I had an answer for it. Um, I, you know, I really don't know 
I really don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that I think, uh, and a lot of people are, are talking about this these days and have been for a while now and for good reason. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's something we need to take seriously. There's always that, that one buddy who says, well, good. I don't want more hunters in the woods. I have a hard enough time finding a little place to yeah. my own as it is, but, yeah. um, as long as it's okay for me, there's no problem. Right. But, uh, that just isn't going to work out in the long run. If, if, if no. we as hunters aren't out there, um, able to speak up for ourselves and our way of life, if there's no one there's no one practicing promoting, it, promoting, promoting it. it. Yeah. And not to mention the economic impacts we have as far as our, our tax dollars going to pay for conservation and wildlife management. Um, there's a whole lot of implications there. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, I think one thing hunters can do is look for those opportunities. You know, if you know a single mom with kids, uh, you can approach her and say, you know, if you ever have any interest, in it, you know, I'd be happy to take your, your kids uh, fishing or show them where I hunt. And, um, I volunteered for some of these. Um, there's a, a, a local, you know, take your take your kids fishing day where a parent who doesn't have any experience can take their kids down to the river and, um, you know, they're supplied with rod and reel and bait. Um, and an adult who who takes an interest is, a, you know, is a powerful thing for any kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Bill, I feel like I would love to just like sit down with you with a coffee or a beer and talk to you for like three hours. I feel like I enjoy your perspective and your story so much. Um, but because I actually have a hard stop uh, because I'm going to be put on babysitting duty here with the little guy soon. I have to wrap this yeah. up much sooner than I'd like. Um, but I have, I, two, I have two more selfish questions um, <laughs> that I want to run by you here real quick. One of those, uh, I am an absolute book worm addict. I, I, I read and read and read. And I'm just kind of curious, being a writer and an outdoorsman, do you have any favorite books related to hunting or fishing or, or wildlife or nature, anything like that that you'd recommend? Um. I have, I've written about this. Uh, William Faulkner's uh, short story, or sometimes it's been called a, a, a novelette or whatever the word is for a short novel, called The Bear, is one of is the and, and it's actually been called the best best short story in in English. Is a is just a fantastic read, and it's about this kids um, down in Mississippi going to the Big Bottom, these um, you know this swamp area to hunt to chase this big bear called Old Ben each year, and these, this group of hunters has been following uh, Old Ben for so long that they he writes at one point he writes that they. They don't really, they no longer expect to catch him. It's just kind of a ritual that they go through. And he has, uh, his hunting mentor is a former slave named Sam Fathers, who takes him under his wings and uh, teaches him what he knows. And, you know, by the time he's 10, this kid is sort of a, a master 
woodsman. But it's it's just it's just an amazing read. I, I reread it almost every year. Wow! So that's one. Yeah, that's one that's been on my list. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of people mention that. Anything anything yeah. else that jumps to mind? Um, not not that much hunting specific. I, uh, Cormac McCarthy really has a feel. Uh, for the natural world and is a great writer to boot. Mm. So anything of his, I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, I've never, I've never read such interesting, interesting descriptions of a landscape as he does. Yeah. He, he has just yeah. in, infinite ways to describe a view or, um, a setting. It's, it's very impressive. Yeah, and very uh, totally original. Mm-hmm. So, so then I think that brings me to my my last question, which ties into that uh, a little bit of what you talked about there with the bear. I'm just curious, selfishly as a writer myself, and then also I think a, a, an important part of hunting and fishing culture is the story, right? The big fish story or the hunting story and sitting around the campfire or back at the lodge or whatever it might be recounting your experience you know, reliving those moments and um, mm-hmm. you are a master of that craft. So Bill, from your perspective, what makes a good story? Uh, damn, I wish I knew. Um, <laughs> a good story. Uh, wow. That is really hard uh, to say. Cause you, you know, there's some, different kinds of stories structured in very different different ways um <laughs> i just feel totally inequipped to, to give advice about that uh is there any consistent guess, element between the stories that you enjoy the most or, or anything like that well i guess the consistent element is that i like them all <laughs> but I, there you go uh, that is good or any this is known as a weak ending. Um, I wish I, I wish I could, uh, I wish I could come up with something more interesting. It's okay. You know, un- unexpected things, you know, every story should have un- some en- element of unexpected, unforeseeable things should have some humor in it and some, um, you know, some pathos, some, something that really gets you at the heart heart level mm-hmm. yeah well uh, to your earlier point that uh most good stories are written by you bill <laughs> um <laughs> where where can where can folks find your books could you could you kind of tell us in my introduction i i mentioned a bit of of your work but if, you, if there's anything you'd like to say about your books your articles or where people can connect with you or find your work online uh I'd love for you to um, share that with us now. Uh, well, you can find there's a lot of more on the field and the stream website. Uh, my latest book, which came out in December is should the tent be burning like that? A professionals, professional amateurs guide to the outdoors. Um, and you can find, you know, you can search for my books on Amazon or any, uh, you know, any of the online retailers and just type in by Bill Heavey and 
um, they should come up. Um, I got I got to tell you a story, Bill, before I let okay. you go here, because uh, because I picked a cop picked up a copy of your book. Should the tent be burning like that? Um, I don't know. Maybe it was around Christmas time. I had it, and my wife went into labor in late January. And that was the book I was currently reading. So I brought that with me to the hospital uh, because her water had broke, but it didn't seem like it was going to be a quick thing. So I knew, okay, this is going to be a long kind of night. So I brought her settle in. Exactly. So I brought your book along and I had it sitting on like the, the windowsill. Now things escalated throughout the morning. And now we've gotten to the point where uh, she's about to give birth. And it had been this horribly intense, you know, eight-hour process. I was so stressed. My wife was going through all this. I couldn't do anything to help her. Um, it just was was traumatizing. And finally, it had gotten to the point where the doctor was going to come in because the doctor wasn't involved very much. It had been like the, the nurses who'd been helping us through all this. But now finally, it was like that moment. It's okay. It's happening. Let's go get the doctor. And I'm thinking, okay, like I'm all amped up. We've been running on adrenaline for like a, a day and it was this very, very intense moment, and I was scared and excited and, and just full with emotion. And the doctor comes in, and I'm imagining he's going to run in and, and get ready and tell my wife to start pushing more, and the baby's going to come out, and it's going to be this huge thing. And he comes in, and he looks at the windowsill, and he sees this book, and he says, A Professional Amateur's Guide to the Outdoors. He's like, A Professional Amateur. How can you be a professional and an amateur? Isn't that isn't that an oxymoron? And he's like, whose book is this? And I'm like, it's mine. But what about my wife? And he's like, well, I just don't get that. What, what is this book about? <laughs> and and for, for several minutes, he tries to talk to me about your book while my wife's screaming in agony right next to me. <laughs> and it was the most bizarre experience oh my God. I've ever had. That is really weird. Yeah. So, uh, so thank yeah. you for that, Bill. You, you've given me a story I will never forget because of your book title. <laughs> so, You're welcome. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad he was born with that complication. Yes. I feel yes. terrible. If the as, <laughs> as soon as I, as soon as I cleared the air on what the book was about, and he got back to work, um, it all went very smoothly, and we've got a very healthy baby boy now. <laughs> so, it's a happy ending. <laughs> Yeah. So, so Bill, thank That's you. Great. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, as I've said already to anyone listening, I cannot recommend Bill's books enough and read everything he writes for Field and Stream. It's, it's absolutely top notch. So thank you, Bill. You bet. I enjoyed it. And that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. And if you did get a kick out of that, please go on over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. It's a huge help. It keeps the lights on. It keeps this podcast going. So thank you in advance for your help there. Also, if I can have you do a few more things, make sure you're subscribed to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. Put more and more videos out there. Would love you guys to catch those. And finally, make sure you're following Wired to Hunt on Facebook and Instagram. I'm sharing lots about my day-to-day adventures there as well. In other news, want to give you another reminder that I am going to be at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Campfire Story Night next week, May 15th in Detroit, Michigan. I'll be telling a story there. The story time is from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Detroit Bus Company. Would love to see you guys there. I will be there uh, 
saying hi, shaking some hands, spinning some yarns, and it uh, should be an absolute blast. So we'd love to see you in Detroit next Tuesday, May 15th. And then if that doesn't work out, if you fast forward to June 21st, Steve Rinella and the Meat Eater crew are going to be having a live podcast in Columbus, Ohio. Like I said, on June 21st, and I'm going to be there as one of their guests. We'd love to see you there too. I think that most of the tickets are sold already, but there might be a few left if you hurry. So head on over to MeatEater.Live to get tickets for that. Again, that's Columbus, Ohio, June 21. Would love to see you there and would love to see you at the BHA Story Night on May 15th. Finally, want to thank our partners who make all this possible. Big thanks to Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Properties, and Huntera Maps. And finally, of course, thank you all for listening. Thanks for being a part of the Wired Hunt community. And until next time, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.